Philanthropy Impact podcast. Listen on for insights into philanthropy, impact investing and sustainability. Hi everybody and welcome back to Philanthropy Impact's Walk in My Shoes series, where today our panel of experts will be talking about how to meet the expectations of the new generation of clients. I'm Sophia and I'm your moderator for this series. As a membership not-for-profit, we have the mission to increase the flow of capital for good by enabling private clients and their families to match their purpose-driven wealth strategies with their values, capturing their sustainable impact investment and philanthropy preferences across the spectrum of capital. We do this by working with professional advisory space to offer networking and educational opportunities like this. So this series is very much part of the membership offering within Philanthropy Impact and a great way to stay connected to the issues facing wealth holders looking to create impact and to showcase new innovations and trends in this space. Quick house rules, uh, as this is just a 30 minute session, we will go very quickly. So we don't really open up the full Q&A, but we do encourage your views and questions via the chat for our panel. Please feel free to introduce yourselves there as well. This is being recorded and it will be available later on our YouTube channel. Today, we are joined by Rowan Jackson, who's the founder of Promising Outcomes. They offer a unique service to businesses that measure and improve stakeholder experiences using expectations, excuse me. Um, also, we have Stephen Wall, who's the founder of The Wealth Mosaic, a digital vendor directory and knowledge resource for wealth firms. And Ajit Dayal, who's an investment expert and founder of Quantum Asset Management Company and Help Your NGO, the online platform. And I'll hand over to you, John, to make a start. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Sophia. So the title today is Professional Advisors Meeting Changing Client Expectations. So there's a uh, there is a, a great transfer of wealth happening. Gen Z, millennials, women of wealth have different needs and expectations and want different approaches from their professional advisors. They see using their capital for good. So I would like to start off by asking each of the panel members uh, what they see uh, within their areas of changing needs and expectations of clients and how uh, the uh, professional advisory marketplace should be reimagined. So I'm just not talking about uh, the finance industry, wealth managers, but also tax, legal, private banks, et cetera, anyone who's dealing with very wealthy private client uh, services. So let's start off with you, Stephen. Thank you, John. Um, I think in general, I see a move from uh, inside out to outside in. So the way the wealth management industry was built historically was what could it do almost for itself and uh, and clients were a factor in that and they were clearly the ones paying for it, but it wasn't necessarily industry that was built for them. Um, I think in a world that's far more connected now where there's so many more different sources of influence and interest and data and knowledge, wealth management is now relearning itself and having to build its business based on a view of what's coming in and what clients want and what the world is saying should be done rather than that internal view of how they should run their business. So that's causing a lot of change. Um, one of the big things that we see is the role of technology. Uh, technology is now absolutely at the heart of building a profitable, relevant and differentiated wealth management business, um, which is not how it was historically. So um, just before I go on to the others, does that mean that the uh, um, uh, people want more relationships with their advisors and that the transactional approach that becomes so efficient uh, around technology that the uh, point of differentiation with advisors will be uh, relationships? 
I think it'll enhance the relationship with advisors. If historically you would meet your advisor once a year, receive a report that was uh, annualized and perhaps a month out of date by the time you received it, that actually the relationship was relatively limited and it was held in the mind or the notebook or some other um, static mechanism of a relationship manager. Now with technology, with data analytics, with communication tools, with um, content platforms, all sorts of different things you can actually significantly enhance the relationship and institutionalize it for a wealth manager rather than perhaps have the risk of it being embedded within one relationship manager who then might leave go somewhere else take the clients with him i think technology offers a fantastic opportunity for we look at it from three pillars good for the client good for the advisor relationship manager good for the business great thank you Ashin. um uh, what is your perspective on the changing client needs and expectations and how the industry can be supported by the kinds of things you're doing, but also be reimagined in a sense. Yeah. So I'll give you perspective really from India. And, you know, I started an investment firm in India three decades ago. And uh, uh, 20 years ago, I started Helper NGO to be a directory to bring more transparency on what NGOs do. And I think in the Indian context, there are two things happening. One is that individuals, wealthy or otherwise, have been keen to give money but they're always nervous about how the money is being used. And Helper NGO kind of solved that problem by bringing more transparency to the NGO world. And then the next one was a big step by the government of India. And far as I know, the only government in the world which has mandated companies that make profits beyond a certain level to give away 2% of their money to what they call CSR, corporate social responsibility issues, things that you know will look after the SDG 17 goals, and other charities and things in India. So I think both these things are very important because they forced level of transparency. And going back to what Stephen said, what we're doing in the mutual fund and helper NGO is using technology to allow individuals to direct the money that they wish to give and to look at the reports and the outcomes, if you will, of what the impact is or what the, we, we don't measure impact, but we'll talk about that later. But we are using technology to allow more NGOs to get access to a larger group of money and get the donors mm -hmm. on our side by saying that they'll use our platform because it's more transparent. So is, is part of what you're doing reflect the reimagining of the role of professional advisors? Because what we're seeing is that a lot of, of uh, clients of professional advisors now um, uh, especially millennials, Gen Z and women of wealth, but also older, uh, the boomers are starting. They want support from their advisors on their on their donor journey, on their philanthropic journey. Are, are you seeing that, that in effect what you're doing is helping to reimagine the role of professional advisors? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the CSR, our team reports to the boards of the foundations or the companies every quarter, you know, and they give them a whole document on what's happening and effectively also advising the donors where the money is would where the money could have been used better because every every donor may have a desire to give uh, to fund project a but our job is to say project a may not be the best place maybe project b c d is where you go so at at the hni level at the corporate level at the wealthy uh, person level that's what we do and we use technology to give a more dumbed down version or a more simpler version of reports to a mass market if you will 
So, um, and uh, you talk about this has uh, been established and functioning quite positively in India, but do you see it applying to the professional advisors in uh, the UK and across the EU? Well, I think in terms of the wealthy clients, I think it is already more advanced here than in India. But I think in terms of the mass giving or reaching out to more donors who may want to give 100,000 pounds or 50,000 pounds, I think the UK and the US are actually backward compared to what we started doing in India. It's yet to get scale, but we're probably ahead of the curve right now in terms of the application of technology. Clients, clients want this kind of support. So Rowan, from your perspective, in terms of the general question I asked about changing client needs and expectations, we need to know why I use the word expectations as opposed to needs. Right. And, uh, what, is, what is this impacting on, how is this all impacting on the industry as it being reimagined? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's very fundamentally important to, to recognize that there is a separation between needs and expectations. They are two completely different things. And um, many organizations don't actually realize that and they don't actually understand expectations and tend to focus on needs. Needs are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And I think that's an important first base position. So if you take the average high net worth individual who wishes to have a wealth management or private bank or an advisory firm working with them, then there are some basic needs they need to have satisfied. And those are the needs which are related to their investment. But the, the, the actual expectations are much more complex to understand and they are really about the relationship. They're about the service side. They're about the support side that they get as, as customers. And what is important here is that in the pandemic, um, consumer needs in the main haven't changed a great deal. But what has changed dramatically is expectations. If I give you a very simple example, my wife and I ordered some food on a supermarket website. We never got the food because we couldn't get a slot for delivery and we couldn't get into the call center to get it delivered. So what did we do? We went to the competition. And that's a good example of the difference in needs and expectations. Our needs have not changed, we need food, but our expectations of how it gets to us have changed dramatically. The second piece of this story, and we, we carry out research all the time, and we're a research consultancy firm, and one of the key things that our, our, our clients' customers are telling us is the point that both Stephen and Ajit are making, which is that if you don't have a digital client experience combined with your interpersonal experience, then you're gonna fall behind. And one of the common experiences we're seeing in the research that we carry out is that that digital experience, and this is right across the board, is the weakest element of all the wealth management firms that we were researching at the moment. So, uh... Ford said, if I'd asked people uh, what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, how does this fit in? Because we're talking about needs, expectations, innovation. So he innovated by coming up with Model T. So how does your um, whole thing around expectations fit within that context? Because I haven't heard the word innovation in what you're saying. No, and, and you're quite right. And one of the, we get this asked, a lot. And one of the key things that we have to understand is that when we're asking the, the clients of our or the customers of our clients for their expectations, we're asking them to describe an ideal situation. And they do that from their current frame of the world. They're not in a situation like asking for faster horses or, you know, they're not asking for an iPad when they didn't know an iPad could exist. That, that is something which takes a different type of research. 
However, there are a couple of things I need to say about this. Uh, a lot of the organizations we work with, they actually thinking that innovation is what is key to their success. When we do the research, innovation doesn't come up at all. What they want their suppliers to do, and this is, this is particularly with high net, worth, high net worth individuals, is get the basics right. Can you actually deliver what you say you're gonna deliver on time and in the way that we want it? And can I have the relationship, as, as Stephen was saying, with not just one person, but with the whole bank or the whole wealth management organization? So the, the, the faster horses issue is a different issue. It's a different research issue. Um, but some of the organizations who say they want that sort of thing discover when they do the expectations of research, it's not on the, on the mind of their uh, clients. Okay, great, thank you. Stephen, following up on that, what are the pitfalls facing traditional firms uh, who aren't yet uh, uh, digitally uh, up to date and try to figure out what word to use? And then where does innovation uh, fit in all this, especially within the context that Rowan was just describing? Yeah, well, I think the, the biggest pitfall is ultimately you'll be out of business at a certain point in time, right? There's not so long to wait until all of these things will be, uh, need to be in place. Um, I still think the market has time. Um, I think technology is a very interesting thing because buying a solution is not uh, solving a problem. It's buying a solution and spending money. Um, all of this needs to be embedded with the strategic um, viewpoint of the firm, who they are as a business, who they service, what those clients want. Um, the leadership of the business um, is very important. Um, so I think buying technology on its own is not a solution to the problem. Um, I agree with Rowan with regard to innovation. Um, it can be misleading. Um, I don't see a lot of innovation in the market, but I do see a lot of developments. And I think firms just need to keep a pace with the competitive landscape. What is expected by clients, advisors? What do their competition do? Innovation is perhaps misleading because that's very difficult to deliver. Um, Firms just need to make sure they have the basics in place. But getting the basics in place with regard to technology is just not, as I mentioned, it's not just about buying a piece of tech. It's how is that tech used? Who is it used for? How is it integrated with the data stack? How is it integrated with external providers? It's much more complicated than buying a piece of software off the shelf. John, can I add to that? Because I think there's, there's something else here, which is picking up from what Stephen's saying. Um, the innovation that high net worth individuals are looking for isn't necessarily you know the sort of the new whiz bang piece of kit the innovation is more to do with can you make your process simple fast and easy to use that's the type of innovation they're certainly looking for right and you and i've been on a panel before and uh, you know i gave the example a personal example where i opened up two bank accounts and asked for online banking in both one took seven months to give me that and the other took seven minutes that's the sort of thing where innovation is needed uh, of course, the, the seven-minute one, which is the one I prefer to use, is actually one of these fintech businesses. And the nature of what's happening in, in sort of, if you like, in innovation is taking something which exists and just making it substantially better. It's not about creating something absolutely fabulously brand new and different. And that's, that's I think we need to define what innovation means in this sense, because it's, a, it's very, very important to recognize that there's huge scope for innovation in the existing relationship activities. Well, thank you. Yeah. You uh, come out of the finance industry um, and now you're applying some of the learnings from that. Uh, can you talk a bit more about how you've transferred that knowledge and those skills? So going back to what Rovin just said, it's not that we had a new idea. We just took what's available out there, the technology that Stephen referred to 
put it all together and came up with a very simple process, a literal one button click solution yeah. for someone to donate, someone to select the objective, what they want in terms of which NGO or which field they'd like to help someone in and then how much money they'd like to give. Yeah. And also comparisons in terms of if they were to look at, you know, project A versus NGO B versus NGO C, et cetera, which is the more efficient one in terms of spending and reaching out to more people in different geographies. So by putting all those data sets together, that's really what we've done. Again, going back to what Stephen spoke about and going back to what, uh, going back to Roman said, which is rather than waiting seven months to get this, you can do it like in seven seconds or seven minutes or a few minutes on our website. But that's for the person who doesn't want to be physically engaged. And I want, to, I want to compare this and contrast this to investing in a listed stock versus being, for example, an investor in a private equity fund or in an unlisted company. If you're a very large endowment or, or, or very large uh, uh, family office, you tend to want to influence and guide what the outcome is. So just like a private equity investor in, in an unlisted company wants a seat on the board, wants to see what's going to happen, what we've seen among the larger donors, the corporates and the foundations is that they want to, in my view, sometimes uh, you know, meddle too much on what the objective is of the NGO they're trying to fund. And that sometimes can be you know, jarring because they've got the money and the NGO or, or the foundation wants the money but along with the money comes all these lists of things which they may not really want to do, but they do it because the money is there. So what we, again, going back to what we learned on the investment side, when you invest in publicly listed stocks, you don't have control of the management, but large foundations as they would in uh, the PE space, want control and do sometimes, you know, mess up what that foundation is trying to do. So that's kind of our learning is to see how do you, let, how do you push back to the, uh, to the wealthy donors that you can't influence everything? You can have criteria, but you can't really try to get the outcomes that you want. It's your donation and it's their effort that will result in the best outcomes in our view. So when, uh, um, I'm going to question one of your basic assumptions, if that's okay. Um, when you invest in a business, do you invest in the percentage of administration that... Um, um, uh, exists as part of that business um, because I get a sense that the percentage of administration is one of the criteria that's using use, but you but you wouldn't do that if you're investing in a company. Or would no, you? you would. You know, if you're asking, so you know, if you would, because if if you've got three stocks in cement or steel to look at, you would of course want to know who's more efficient. But you may also, as a charity donor, as someone trying to donate something you may also wish to further a cause in your city or your hometown or your zip code where you grew up. And then those criteria about equating administrative costs don't come in the picture because you've chosen a different, uh, a, a, a different focus area, which is I grew up in city A and I want city A to prosper as opposed to the best organization across the UK or the most efficient one across India. So you get to choose the criteria you want in that sense. But you don't measure impact, you don't measure outcomes. We don't measure impact, but we, because, you know, like, like we always say, if you give me money to feed a street child in Bombay, I can, it'll cost you more than to feed a child on the street in a state of Bihar, one of the poorest states in India. And 
you know, I can't measure half a smile of that kid in Bombay to a full smile of the child in Bihar. I've not found any great consultant who can tell me which is better. They both have had an impact to the person's life. And I think at the end of the day, it's for the donors to decide, you know, in terms of geography, in terms of what they want, rather than saying the child in Bihar has got a full smile. And by the way, it costs less to feed the child in Bihar. So all the money should go there and don't invest in the child in, in Bombay because Bombay being an urban city is much more expensive. And at best, you can get half a smile from the child in Bombay. That's it to me, that's impact measurement. And I don't like it at all. Okay, well, that's going to create a bit of controversy, I think. <laughs> uh, Ron, from a client expectation perspective, do you think that Azure's approach makes sense? Yes, I think it does. And one of the interesting things is that uh, not necessarily with the, the poor children in Bombay or similar places, um, but I think there are um, beneficiaries of charities where you can actually measure the expectations they have and indeed then measure the performance against those expectations. Uh, and we have done work with an NGO which has actually done that. Um, the other aspect which is actually useful um, is you can measure the expectations of donors as well. Uh, and then how well did the charity or the NGO actually deliver on those expectations. And again, that is possible to be done. So measurement of those two things, uh, the expectations and the performance against them uh, is possible. I, I don't say it's easy. Um, and I think this is the point that Ajit's making. Um, th th there is a necessity to do some work on defining who the beneficiary is and what actually uh, their expectations are. So one of, one of the key characteristics of expectations measurement, uh, and this is something which takes a little bit of understanding by quite a lot of organizations is that uh, you need to actually go out and find out what they are. Uh, and uh, so there's always a, a first step, which is qualitative research. And this is what Promising Outcomes does. And we then find out how well do they perform against that qualitative set of expectations. And so we can measure this. Um, it, it's for some organizations completely novel. They never had this sort of measurement before. Uh, and uh, therefore it takes a bit of getting used to. But once it, it's in place, it, it's very, very easy to repeat it on a regular basis, which should be done as well. So um, where does greenwashing come into this? Because uh, is, is, um, if, if you're uh, looking in one city and you look at an organization and 30% of the revenue is going to administration, you look at another city um, and uh, doing the same kind of service, but uh, uh, 25 or 20 percent goes into administration. Well, where do you pick up on this? And if I, I don't, I know we've never applied the concept of greenwashing to this, but I think it's sort of an interesting thought. So can I just, yeah? So I mean, you know, uh, this whole talk about ESG, we actually wrote an article called "Eyewash, Hogwash, and Greenwash: ESG." <laughs> And you should Google. You should Google it. You'll find it on the internet. And uh, you know, and, and, and sorry, eyewash, hogwash, and greenwash. E H G. Okay. okay. So, you know, so we we in in the field of investments, we've seen this. We know it exists. You've got the biggest mutual funds in the world who who sign stuff and say they're going to do this, and they do the opposite on the ground in the stock markets. Completely the opposite in the portfolios. Uh, but, you know, I'll go back to what John Bogle said. John Bogle, the founder of, of the scene, Vanguard, he said, you cannot really, you don't know the outcome, but you know costs. 
you know, the expense ratio of a fund. And he built a whole, you know, he built a whole mutual fund industry, uh, Vanguard, which is low cost direct to investor based on that. I'm not saying that you cannot measure the outcomes of the return. I'm saying that as a donor, and goes back to what Roman said about expectations and needs of the donor, that you need to make them understand that these are the elements which will determine what the outcomes are. There's a certain cost to a child in Bombay. There's a certain cost to a child in other parts of India, and yeah. that will determine and change the outcomes. So I think if you put the expense and outcome you know, in some kind of a level on a relationship and you explain it, then going back to what Roman said, the expectations will be a lot better and in sync with what the NGO or the charity can actually deliver. Yeah, I think, I think to add to that, John, there's there's another element here because I, I love eyewash, hogwash and greenwash. I'm going to use that. I haven't heard that before, but it's terrific. Uh, I, think, I think there's an interesting element here and this applies in many fields, not just in the NGO and charitable fields. And that is that in many, many cases, there are projects, let's say an NGO is doing a project in a particular field um, where the project meets the needs of the donors, but it doesn't meet their expectations. And that is a very, very common experience that we hear of. Um, and, 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 you know, the provider of the project frequently, and the construction industry is a very good example of this, they say, well, we met your needs. And then and so why are you still unhappy? Well, because you didn't meet our expectations. And that's a very good example of the difference between the two. Um, and, and I think, you know, that there are this growing number of articles in, in the media about greenwash. Um, and of course, the, the, the leader of Patagonia is, is, is a good example. Uh, I think it's last week, wasn't it? Um, of, of putting his company into the hands of the employees. Um, I, I, there are other motivations for that, which I won't go into. <laughs> but I think there is definitely a, a huge amount of that going on. And um, there's the increasing number of articles about this. But it doesn't take away, as Edward Rowan, from the need for a funder to do due diligence. No, yeah. um, so, yes, so that's a compliment what you have. And that's to go back to what Stephen was saying. That's where technology comes in. That's where information flows, can reports can be tailor-made to suit the needs of the donors and their requirements. And I think that's very important that, and I, I think also uh, Robin mentioned this, that, uh, that you know, we also find that many, many charities don't even have websites. And yeah. if you don't have a website, how do you exchange information? If you can't exchange information, how can I attract a donor to give you money and do comps on you compared to your peer? And I think that's very important to start with that basic you know, of need of information. Thank you. Stephen, can we, um, we've talked a lot about philanthropy um, and supporting donors on their donor journey and, and the approaches that uh, Ajit was talking about. Well, let's, let's go back to professional advisors and impact or ESG investing or whatever we want to use because they're always misused in some way or other. But uh, how important is tech and digital access to the new generation of clients? And uh, what, what forms of tech work today and what's coming in the future? Um, it's extremely important, um, but let's not forget that there's an existing client base who it's also important to. So I often think this view of the future is great, but we shouldn't forget about the clients and what they want today. COVID was the perfect example of how tech needed to improve. Sorry, this I'm going to sorry, I'm going to interrupt just for a second to play a role. It's not what they want; it's what they expect. <laughs> there you go, Rowan. <laughs> Rowan's jumping for joy. Um, 
So it's absolute, it's a necessity and it's a necessity now. Um, the industry is on its journey, um, but it's still relatively early in, 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 in its movement forward. Um, in terms of what's good and what's required, I mean, there's loads of interesting stuff. Um, I think if you think of it from the advisor's perspective, there's not enough use of CRM um, from a client and institutional perspective, client onboarding such as what Rowan reference can be really awful and a massive bugbear for the industry. Um, there's huge issues with regard to integration of technologies, them not talking to each other effectively, advisors having to log into 10, 15, 20 different environments to get a consolidated view, which is bad for them, bad for the client, bad for the business. From a client perspective, there's some really great things now. There's some fantastic new reporting tools out there. There are some great investment marketplaces also in the area of ESG impact and philanthropy. Um, so there's a huge amount happening, um, but there's still a huge amount to do um, because I think yeah, just historically speaking, tech wasn't put at the center of the industry and now it probably should be. Yeah, I, I agree with that, John. I just want to add something to that. We're out of time, Ron. Sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Um, well, that's okay. Sophia's come on, which is my clue. So um, I, 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 I'm I, disappointed not to hear about the metaverse, Stephen. But anyway, we'll let that go. <laughs> you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Not yet. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, if Sophia allows 30 seconds of final words of wisdom from each of you. Okay. So um, um, who wants to start? Ajit, do you want to start? 30 seconds, final words of wisdom. Final words of wisdom are that every donor must know what they want to do, not overreach, and then evaluate, then donate, which is the tagline of Helper NGO. Evaluate, then donate. Okay, great. Ron? I think it's the, back to what I said earlier, which is you need to understand what the expectations of your high net worth clients are. And if you don't, you haven't got a, you know, a leg to stand on effectively. And once you understand those expectations, then you can start to measure how well you're performing against them and, and this is the interesting bit for many chief executives, um, one of the key things that we do in Promising Outcomes is we help them understand how their competition are doing as well. Most chief executives absolutely love that. Okay, great. Steve, and then like it or not, I think technology will dictate the future of the wealth management industry and those who adopt it well will be the leading players. Great. Okay. So we, we're talking about professional advisors meeting change, changing client expectations. What we didn't talk about was compliance to the new consumer uh, duty regulations that have just been brought out, which will, I think, have a significant impact on conversations that advisors have. They will have to talk to them about their values, their motivations, and ambitions, and um, they'll have to learn how to do that. And one of the neat things uh, is that we... Um, uh, are, are very good at teaching advisors about how to have those conversations. So that's a tricky conversation. So I'll end with that. Sophia, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Rod, Stephen, and Ajit. That was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was good. Thank you very much. Uh, apologies if there was issues with the chat. We're not sure what's gone on there. Um, but we did get some some chat going on in the Q&A today, Ajit. Someone was agreeing with you. Um, right, that's great. We're all done for this. I do need to say that, that on the um, 11th of October, we are doing this similar conversation, but real deep dive into all of the things John said that we haven't talked about. Um, but that's a face-to-face -face event in, at Brown Advisory's offices in London. There should have been invites gone out, but we would really love to see you all there um, and have a nice drink and a chat and a catch up around all of these things. But thank you all for your time today and we will see you in two weeks for the next one.
Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Goodbye. Pleasure.